This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. This is why he is, of all the early Christological heresies, sort of the most comprehensive in that Arius actually goes wrong on both the divinity and the humanity of the Son. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master and I am joined by James Dalzell. As always, James, it is good to be here with you. Good to be here, Jonathan. Now, I want to begin this episode with a trigger warning to our listeners. If you are triggered by long words describing ancient heresies, best to turn off now. We'll give you a few seconds to do that. We're going to be introducing, or, or perhaps for some of you not introducing, but we're going to be talking about some ancient Christian heresies. Jesus, of course, famously asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And in a sense, that is the framing question for everything we're going to discuss today. But what we're going to try to do is this. I'm going to introduce some uh, ancient Christian heresies, and James, what I'd like you to do is to explain them a little bit, and and I'll press you if you're if your language isn't isn't clear enough, because these this may be an introduction for some, and and then and then we can talk a little bit about why these ideas were rejected by the church and why they're very very important ideas for us to be aware of today. Okay, before I get put on the spot, maybe I should put you on the spot and okay. say, um, I think the word heresy actually sometimes scares the modern listener. Um, it, it sounds like it sounds like floggings and mm-hmm. and endless trials and this sort of thing. Um, when you say heresy, uh, maybe you could just briefly explain what you mean by that. In this case, I guess I was thinking about things that were classified as heretical by the earliest Christians. So, I mean, I guess I was using it more in a historical sense. Um, if what you mean is, what would we consider a heresy today? Uh, that's a little harder, you know, for me to comment on particularly. I don't think that's a designation that's entirely up to me to, sure. to make. But um, but but these were, these were teachings that were understood to cut so deeply against the grain of early Christian teaching and and were in a sense n- not only um, th- these weren't just disagreements about biblical teaching these were things that that undercut the Christian faith undercut the gospel undercut what we confess about who Jesus Christ is right and and really that which is against the pattern of sound words that which is against that's right right teaching as we would understand it from the scripture that's right and i mean uh, you bring up a good point though because we can use that term for almost any person that we disagree with today if i don't agree with your take on a certain passage of scripture i can say well that's against the pattern of that's her- that's heretical but we're talking about something much more substantial than that things that were broadly and by by broad consensus recognized as uh as against sound teaching and particularly on uh, what we'll talk about today, the fundamental identity of who Christ is. Couldn't couldn't be a more central question for any human being to answer, really, uh, than who who is Jesus Christ. All right, so let's start. We're going to jump right in with the big words, and I want, I'm going to ask you to tackle two at the same time. First is docetism, 
and Ebionitism. Okay, these are two of the earliest uh, heresies, and there is no church council so much that convenes to refute these, but they were broadly rejected and then more formally rejected by later councils. Docetism is the argument um, to put it, this is all putting it very simply, that Christ is truly divine, mm-hmm. uh, but is not truly human, uh, but that he only seemed to be human. Uh, so that, and there are different variations of docetism, but it actually comes from the word, you're thinking, where do we get this term? It comes from the word dakeo, uh, to, to think or to seem or to appear. Uh, and it's the argument that while Christ is truly God, he only appeared Uh, to be man, so that Jesus of Nazareth is something more like an apparition Mm -hmm. uh, rather than um, an actual someone who is this divine person. It's an appearing to be human while not really being man. And the church rejects this uh, for for multiple reasons, uh, but perhaps most fundamentally, we would say uh, that what we need Christ to be is, in fact, a real man, not, as it were, a hologram or an appearance of a real man. We actually need a man as real as the man who plunged us into sin in the first place. Uh, we need We need someone who is as truly man as Adam was. Uh, in order to represent us in our nature. And for this reason, among many others, the early church rejects docetism. A Jesus who isn't really a man doesn't save real humans. Right. And I think sometimes people today unwittingly say things along the lines of docetism, trying to preserve the deity of Christ. Sure. Every heresy has uh, on one side, somewhere in it, a sound motivation, uh, but it tries to... It tries to preserve that soundness at the expense of another uh, sound or orthodox teaching, in this case, the true humanity of the Son. The other one you mentioned was Ebionitism, or we might, I might just use the more general term adoptionism. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, the, this is the view that, um, of the flip side, as it were, Christ is not truly divine, um, but rather who Jesus is, is a, is a son, uh, is a natural born son of Mary and Joseph, uh, an upstanding man, no doubt. Uh, and that at some point in his career, usually, usually identify with his baptism mm-hmm. in the Jordan River, he was adopted by God, and so that during his baptism, when you hear the heavenly voice say that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, um, there's no whiff whatsoever of this being the natural son of God, but rather this was simply an honorific title right. uh, that was bestowed upon this man, Jesus of Nazareth, because God was here designating him for a special ministry and a special purpose. No different than the marking out, perhaps, of any of the prophets of old, but certainly greater than all of those. So that this isn't the true and eternal Son of God. This isn't the one who created all things and who upholds all things by the word of his power. Uh, The church also rejects adoptionism, maybe for the simple reason, and again, we're being necessarily brief, but for the simple reason that we worship Jesus, mm-hmm. and if Jesus is not, in and fact, we always have, Christians we always, always yes, have. This has not been. This has not been a debate. In fact, even in the even in the very earliest records in the New Testament itself, Jesus repeatedly is receiving worship, mm-hmm. uh, and even even when he says uh, to the devil in the wilderness um, that you should worship God alone. That word used uh, by Matthew for worship is used elsewhere by Matthew to describe 
the action of certain persons toward Jesus. What needs to be rendered to him. Worshiping him. So that the the worship of Christ, among other things, uh, not the least of which is the New Testament's witness to his divinity in in numerous ways, giving him uh, the titles of God, ascribing to him the works that only God does, mm-hmm. receiving the worship that only God is due. All of these reasons uh, were, were arguments against the mere humanity of Jesus Christ. And these two are the earliest sort of on the one side denying true humanity on the other side denying true divinity. All right, let's move on to another one that denies the true divinity of Christ. And this is really I think we would agree the big one. This is the big one in the in the early church. Arianism. So tell us about Arianism. Yeah, and Arius is in some ways the arch heretic. He's he's almost he's almost synonymous with what we mean when we say a heretic like Arius, and then everyone else gets second billing. Um, in part because Arius's heresy is the first that got sort of empire wide notoriety. Yes. Um, and so there there are certain sort of historical circumstances that explain why this got so much more attention, uh, partly because its its impact was so much more broadly felt, and how it was dealt with. Uh, this is a heresy that arose in the early 4th century in Alexandria, Egypt. The way that it was dealt with was being watched closely by people all over the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, of course, only had recently been um, I don't want to say made Christian, but Christianity had recently come into favor through the conversion of Constantine. And so now the controversies within the church had a, a much broader impact uh, on the civilized world than they had hitherto. So for some, those are some of the reasons why Arius just gets so much more attention than earlier heretics. And he was, by all accounts, a very persuasive speaker. He wrote songs. He was, to, a, po- he was a popular preacher yes, in yeah, Alexandria. Yeah, popular preacher. He he wrote hymns that people sang that communicated his heretical teachings, all, all kinds of ways in which he was a significant figure. Okay, so so what are his teachings? What are his teachings? Uh, in particular, and this is where this is why he is of all of all the early Christological heresies, sort of the most comprehensive. In that, Arius actually goes wrong on both the divinity and the humanity of the Son. Uh, we usually think of Arius particularly with regard to his denial of the true divinity yes. of the Son. And this is the aspect of his teaching that was formally dealt with in 325 at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, what he taught was that there was a time, This is his, these are his own words from a letter he wrote to the Bishop of Alexandria, there was a time when the Son was not. There was when he was not. There was when he was not. Uh, which is to ask the question, well, from whence did he come? Right. Uh, and the answer is that he was, to put it shortly, briefly, created before all other creatures. That he is the greatest of God's creatures, but nevertheless still creature. And he and Arius is very emphatic. He is not co-eternal. He is not co-equal with God in his divinity. Sometimes we call this subordinationism. Uh, but this is a subordinationism of, of being, in that the sun turns out to be, in fact, a great creature. Now, you might think to yourself, who would, who would dare say this uh, about the sun, and why would he say it? Um, not to, not to get into too much depth, uh, but Arius was, Arius was working within a, a cosmological framework in which he understood the sun to be a mediator of creation. 
And in you said big words, so I'm gonna. I took some license from that. We, in, we warned in, everyone. In, uh, we, they were warned. Uh, if you're still listening, you were warned. You were warned. Uh, in in Neoplatonic cosmology, uh, the one, which is the highest being from which all other things emanate, is not directly the create. Is not the immediate creator of the world. Rather, the one, in a certain sense emanates very high but less than fully divine um, entities that we sometimes call demigods or demiurges. These are semi-divine intermediary beings that mediate between the one true God and the creation. This, um, this idea that the sun was the mediator of creation was actually introduced into the Christian way of thinking by uh, an earlier Alexandrian origin, who had been about 75 to 80 years before this controversy, had been a very uh, popular preacher, not preacher, but teacher and scholar. Considered one of the great thinkers of the early church. And, and rightly so. Yeah. He, was a, he was an enormous intellect um, and shed a lot of light on, on biblical and theological truths. Some of that very sound, some of it um, uh, enough to warrant a condemnation in the 5th century. So, he has a disputed heritage, but he had taught that the sun was a mediator. Now, Origen was admittedly somewhat coy as to where this left the sun ontologically. He would say that the sun was co-eternal with the Father, and, and Origen was very clear, we cannot say that there was when he was not. Some have assumed that that means that Origen is clearly affirming the full and true divinity of the Son. Um, I'm not personally as convinced that that's what he's doing because the reason he's saying that the Son is necessarily eternal is because he believes in Platonic fashion in, in an eternal succession of worlds. And of course, since God only creates worlds through an intermediary, that also is his Platonic heritage, that there must be an eternal intermediary also generating this eternal succession of worlds. Okay, but, let, but okay. at the risk of getting bogged down in origin, which is always a risk. Come, come to, but let's, so let's go all the way, then let's just fast forward to the 4th century. Here's Arius in the same town um, with the same idea that the Son is a mediator between God and the world. And Arius has, uh, I think, to, to his credit, the wherewithal to recognize that where this leads, in other words, there are not three things, God, creatures, and then other things, intermediaries that are neither God nor creatures. Um, there, there's God and there's creation. And Arius accepts that sort of biblical alternative, mm -hmm. God and things made by God. So, where does the sun, the, the mediator of creation, where does the sun fit in this question, God or creature? And Arius says, he fits on the side of the creature mm -hmm. and that the mediator of creation is himself the greatest creature, as it were. Now, this raises lots of intellectual questions, um, infinite regress. Well, then, does there have to be a mediator to, to mediate the creation of the first mediator? You know, that sort of question. And these are all orthodox objections to Arianism, but probably the one that caught the most traction was the fact that we worship Jesus and every Christian worships Jesus, uh, but if Jesus is not truly divine, co-eternal and co-equal with the Father, um, then are we not involved in some kind of idolatry, worshiping one who is, in fact, mere, even if great, creature? Uh, and that's really that's really the question that's being addressed by so, the Council of Nicaea. So, it came down to worship, but it also came down to salvation, because the argument was made, was it not, that if, in fact, Jesus isn't fully God then and fully man, then he can't 
save us. And that's that's one of the chief arguments that Athanasius makes right. in his series of books against the Arians, um, is that he he is not sufficient or powerful to save. If he's not divine, then he doesn't have the power to make us alive from the dead. Um, and to and to effect um, our salvation because our humanity wasn't actually joined even in a hypostatic union to God Himself. Okay, so so that's the that's the big one. That's the one that covers both the uh, divinity and the humanity. Uh, let me hit you with a few more just so that we can sort of round this out. Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism actually strangely um, rejects the. Arian denial of the true divinity of the Son, but it actually accepts another Arian teaching, which is that the humanity of Christ had no human soul. And that was another one of Arius' teachings, right. is, that, is that Christ had a human body, um, but he did not have a human soul. And that, in fact, the, the person of the Son, um, the great creature, uh, as Arius would understand it, substituted for the role of the human soul, including the mind and volition and all that kind of thing. Um, Apollinaris effectively agreed with Arius on that. He disagreed with Arius that the son was not truly divine. In fact, he ascribed true divinity to the son. But he did agree with Arius that the son did not have a human soul, only a human body. He received a great deal of pushback on that um, and modified his view to say, well, he does have a soul in the sense of an animal soul. That is, say, something to animate his body and make it a living thing since the soul is that which makes a thing a living thing. He must have an animal soul to animate his flesh, but he doesn't have an intellectual or a rational soul. And this also was rejected by his contemporaries and by the church more broadly in that this made Christ less than truly human. In fact, it made him merely animal since being rational was the thing that made us not like other animals. Uh, and so, that also was that also was rejected by the church, and the famous sort of response that comes out of that is um, the response of the Cappadocians: "That which is not assumed cannot be healed." Um, if Christ does not assume a total humanity, body and soul, including intellect, um, then he is not true man. All right, two more, two more big words: uh, Nestorianism. And then Eutychianism. Nestorianism is, at least for my money, the, the most difficult. It's the one that's the closest to the orthodox position, I would I th say. I think it is. And it's the one that, at least in the words of Nestorius, is most ambiguous as to where he actually stands uh, on the disputed question. In, in short, Nestorianism, whether Nestorius himself really held this or not, probably he did. Some say he didn't. Uh, but Nestorianism teaches that... Um, not only are there two natures, divine and human, truly real natures, they're not merged together, they're not fused, they're not changed in any way, um, true God and true man, but he also said that these are two natures belonging to two persons, um, or at least that is how he was understood uh, to be speaking, in which case Nestorianism sounds like a sort of updated version of adoptionism. It sounds like um, the eternal son of God, the Logos, is just... Um, spending a lot of time with Jesus of Nazareth, <laughs> you know, hanging out really close. Uh, and you have, I mean, I can appreciate what Nestorius is trying to preserve. He's trying to preserve uh, the doctrine of divine immutability and of divine impassibility. And let's face it, um, Jesus Christ, the man, suffers. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, the man, undergoes changes. He he grows in in knowledge. All things that we could never say are true of 
one who is God. And yet we do say these are true of Jesus. Um, how can that be the case? And the way that the Storianism attempts to resolve that difficulty is to make the argument that these, in fact, are not merely two natures of one person, but two persons with two distinct natures. All right, Eutychianism. Finally, uh, Eutychianism is uh, middle 5th century and refuted um, together with these other heresies at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Eutychianism is the argument that prior to the incarnation, the divinity and the humanity of the Son were complete natures distinct from each other, but that in the incarnation, they were fused together in such a way that the humanity was divinized and the divinity was humanized so as to produce a sort of third thing, uh, a hybrid nature that was neither true God uh, nor true man, but had undergone such a change that the nature of the Son, the nature of, Je of, of Jesus Christ, was in fact a sort of um, God-man nature. Um, not true God, not true man, but something composed out of what used to be true God and used to be true man. Uh, this also, this dis in other words, he does not believe in a distinction of natures. He does not believe that the Son subsists into natures, but rather that the Son subsists in a single nature brought together from a combination of divinity. You're taking and juice and water, pouring them into the same cup and mixing them. And together. having a watery juice that exactly. you would not say is true water or true, or juice. true juice. There you go. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so let's summarize this briefly and and let me let me put the question to you this way. What do we have to affirm in order to avoid all of these various uh, heretical teachings, which some of which are subtle, some 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 of which we we would say are biblically very obviously wrong, but some are some are more subtle. So so what are the important things that we need to hang on to? Well, two things: you need to subscribe to the um, Creed of Nicaea uh, and to the symbol of Chalcedon. There, that's easy done. Okay. But but let me make no, it more. That, let me let me boil it down. No, but it's an important point because it does underscore the fact that we we do need to look at the creeds. Uh, from the past, and and that's one of the things I think both of us are, are committed to. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is committed to. So that that's that's not a that's not a small thing. And they're not the creeds are not hasty productions. They are the product of a great deal of broad deliberation and debate on these questions. Uh, and I think for that reason, while of course not on par with Scripture, do do require us to ponder and think about what our forefathers in the faith collectively agreed on with regard to who is Christ. In addition to that, if I could just boil it down, I would recommend to readers the three incarnational truths proposed by Thomas Wayne Andy. Um, I'm taking the, I, I first came across these in his book, Does God Change?, which is an earlier book of his, I think still in print, on the incarnation. And there are three incarnational truths that Wayne Andy identifies and, and insists that any true Christology is going to have to hold on to all three of these. Uh, the first, he says, is that we must conf confess that um, it is truly God, the Son, who is man. That we don't want to say that he who is man is someone other than the eternal Son of God by whom all things hold together and who made the worlds by the word of his power. That it's truly God who is man. He says, secondly, we have to confess that it's truly man that God the Son is. It's truly God who is man, but it's truly man that God the Son is, uh, ruling out things like docetism and 
mere appearances. And then finally, he says we have to affirm that God the Son truly is man. Uh, and this is really the response to Nestorianism. Nestorianism just can't bring itself to say, um, God the Son is this man, Jesus. Um, that there's an identity of person uh, such that we can point to Jesus of Nazareth and say, that one, he, he created all things and upholds all things by the word of his power. So that we need to confess that it's truly God who is man, truly man that God the Son is, and that God the Son truly is man. If we can hold on to these three truths, Wayne Andy argues, and I think convincingly, that we have sort of the basic equipment to identify and rule out any number of Christological heresies. Well, I'm surprised we got through that in in just a shade over 20 minutes. I'm sure we'll frustrate a few listeners. This is a little uh, more than a few. This is just an introduction. This is just a little a little nudge in the direction of of contemplating the early Christological heresies, not for the reason of merely identifying error, but for the for the good of identifying the wonder and the truth and the mystery of the incarnation, the central Christian mystery that God the Son took on flesh and subsisted as man accomplishing our salvation. Amen. Well, we, we thank all of you for listening to this episode, and we hope you'll join us for more in the future. If you, if you can think of anyone who might be helped by this, please feel free to pass it along and feel free to also send us your questions. Also, just for listening, just for making it through this entire conversation, we'd like to offer you the the opportunity to win a copy of our good friend Steve Nichols' book, For Us and for Our Salvation, The Doctrine of Christ in the Early Church. It's a very accessible book, came out about 10 years ago, and if you go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, there'll be an opportunity for you to enter to win for us and for our salvation, those words taken from the Nicene Creed. We are glad to have you as listeners we uh, couldn't do this without the support of generous listeners like you. So if you'd like to donate, you can go to AllianceNet.org or you could go to PlaceForTruth.org. And in both those places, you can click and donate to help podcasts like this and all the work that the Alliance does. Thanks, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>